You're listening to the Avenue Church Podcast. Our desire is that this message will inspire you to encounter Jesus and find a better way to do life. For more info and to connect with us, visit us online at theavenuechurch.com. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Oh, man, it is, it is great to be here today. Like Mark said, I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ just down the road at Vista Community Church. Uh, Mark and I, we, we do go back. I think I, I did his wedding 12 years ago, which is crazy. And as you can imagine, uh, the star of the show was, was obviously Mark's wonderful wife, Ashley. But y'all, Mark Miller, Mark Miller can dance, y'all. Did y'all know Mark could dance? He, Mark, y'all think Mark should come out here and show us a little something of what he's... No, we're not going to do that to him, but I just thought that you should know that. Oh, is it? Yeah, don't put it past him. I'm telling you, the man can move. Um, that in addition to having a wonderful and warm pastor and preacher like David Brown, you also have the best dancing executive pastor in the greater Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And I just thought that you should be aware of what you have on your hands here. So at my church, we are in the middle of this series where we are reading through Paul's letter to the Romans, right? Known as Romans. And we're actually reading through it backwards. We're calling the series Reading Romans Backwards. And so we started in chapter 16. We're working our way back to the beginning of the letter. And I don't know how much you know about reading, but I'm going to assume you know enough to know that reading backwards is usually a very bad idea. And so why are we reading through Romans backwards at my church? And why are we going to do a very abbreviated backwards reading of Romans today? It's a good question. Show of hands, anybody ever seen the movie, The Sixth Sense? Any Sixth Sense? Yeah, right. If, if you haven't seen it, it has like the biggest end of movie plot twist of any movie in like the last 30 years, right? And I hate to spoil this for you, but I feel like the statute of spoiler limitations is up. Are we in agreement on this? You've had 30 years to see this movie, people. If you have not seen The Sixth Sense, this is on you. So here's, here's what goes down. If you don't want it to be spoiled, you can go get you a little refill on your coffee. But here's what goes down. Main character, played by Bruce Willis. He's this, this therapist. Very first scene of the movie, he gets shot by a very disturbed patient of his. Very tragic. Then the movie kind of jumps ahead in time, though, and we learn that, that dear Bruce, he has this very difficult relationship with his wife where she just, like, literally never talks to him. Also, just known as marriage sometimes. Um, and then he has this relationship with this really troubled little boy who can see dead people. I see dead people. You remember that? It's that movie. And so the whole movie is Bruce trying to save his marriage and help the little boy who can see dead people. That's the movie. At the very end of the movie, though, we have this final scene. We get this big aha moment where we learn that Bruce Willis is dead. Right? You remember? He's dead. He's been dead the whole movie. That's why this little boy who can see dead people can see him, because he's dead. Incidentally, this is also why his wife goes like, the whole movie without talking to him, right? Because he's dead. And I am stealing this observation, but obviously the greatest thing in hindsight about The Sixth Sense is that we watch this guy get shot, bam, bleed out, first scene of the movie, okay? And then we watch his wife literally not talk to him for a whole year. And it never even occurs to us that he might be dead because it made more sense to us that his wife just didn't talk to him for a year. Then it made sense to us that he's dead. We watched this man get shot, bleed out, die, bang, not talk to a fear. And we're all just like, yep, know what that's like. I have been there before. Marriage is hard. He got shot. It's his fault. He got shot and it's his fault somehow. She's not even going to talk to him. Anyways, the point is that the end of the story helps make sense of everything that goes before it in the story. The end of the story sheds light on everything that happens before it. And the same thing is true for the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. 
Now, if you've read Romans before, there's a good chance you, you gave up somewhere between chapters 9 and 11. And that is because Romans 1 through 11 contains some of the densest, most complicated theological stuff in the New Testament. Because of this, it has led many people to believe that Romans is like Paul's, his final theological dissertation, where he, he sits down, he, he channels his deepest, nerdiest self, and he explains all the mysteries of God and God's ways in the world. But far from being an abstract theological dissertation paper, Paul's letter to the Romans is first and foremost, like most every book in the New Testament, a letter to a church. That's what Romans is. Not a dissertation, a letter to a church. To be more specific, it is a letter that Paul wrote to five small house churches that existed in ancient Rome, the center and capital of the largest empire the world had ever seen around 55 CE. And this little cluster of churches had a very, very, very big problem. And I know it's going to be hard to relate to this because this is so long ago. These are ancient people with ancient people problems. But the really, really, really big problem that these ancient churches were facing is that they were filled with people. That, That was it. That was the problem. People who apparently had a habit of not getting along. Can you believe that? People who don't get along. I know, ancient people, ancient problems. Just bear with me. I'll try to make this relate to you today. When we read Romans backwards, we have this aha, oh, I see dead people, Bruce Willis is dead moment where we realize that all the complicated theological stuff in the front half of the book is actually all in service to a very, very simple goal that gets revealed at the very end of the book. Here's the goal. Here's the Bruce Willis is dead moment, okay? Paul is writing to these five small house churches located at the heart of the Roman Empire and filled with people who don't get along because they need to learn to get along because the gospel is in jeopardy because if they don't learn how to be the scandalously diverse and yet united family that God has called into being through Christ and the power of the Spirit, then the gospel will be rendered unbelievable. The world will not be able to believe in the gospel. And the longest recorded prayer we have of his, it's known as his high priestly prayer, Jesus closes by saying this. I want you to pay careful attention here. He says, now I don't ask on behalf of these disciples alone, but for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I'm in you, that they may be in us, this is important here, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, the glory which you have given me, I've given it to them that they may be one. Just as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Here it is again. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Now, have you ever wondered what it would take for the world to believe that God sent Jesus? Ever wondered that? I wonder that all the time. What would it take? Would it take like a a sign in the sky, you know, in the heavens, Uh, the perfect rational argument for the existence of God, a Christian takeover of all world government, surveillance footage of the resurrection. What would it take? What would it take for the world to believe that God sent Jesus? Well, here's what Jesus said it would take. You ready for this? Here's what Jesus said it would take. If my disciples could get along. That was it. That's what Jesus said. If my disciples could get along, then the world could believe that God sent me. Now, according to Jesus, whose word I take very seriously on such matters, the unity of his disciples determines the world's capacity to believe. Meaning our unity makes the gospel believable. Our unity makes the gospel believable. On the flip side, this means our disunity does what? 
It makes the gospel unbelievable. People are unable to believe and receive the gospel. Now, does that make sense to you? Right? It actually makes a lot of sense because y'all think about this. How in the world is the world supposed to believe that Jesus Christ is capable of conquering sin, suffering, and death? If he is apparently incapable of conquering the hostilities that divide conservatives and progressives and rich and poor and men and women and black and white and brown people, how in the world is the world supposed to believe that Jesus Christ has conquered the grave? If he cannot conquer the divisions that exist in this room this morning in Jesus' own family, it's not believable. Every two years, my church does this event called Jesus for President. We do it on a midterm and presidential election nights. The idea is very simple. Uh, the idea is that on the most divisive night of the year, we don't vote and then go home and watch CNN or Fox News and sip on that gross partisan Kool-Aid and celebrate because we're so happy because we won and everything's better. Jesus is coming back. Oh, we're so sad because we lost. It's the worst thing ever. No, instead of doing that nonsense at my church, we gather together, we pledge our allegiance to King Jesus, and we remind ourselves that Jesus is Lord. I don't care who the president is. I know who the Lord is. The red Republicans and the blue Democrats, they gather together around a common cup of purple communion wine. Come on now. We remind ourselves that God and Christ has done something to overcome our deepest disagreements. We agree with God and Christ that he has overcome our deepest disagreements. And it's awesome. You ought to do it. We can do it together in a couple years if you want. Well, I was telling another pastor about this event recently. And he says to me, man, it sounds awesome. It does. But isn't it awkward when everybody is bummed because we lost? It took me back for a moment and I thought to myself, who is this we you speak of? I don't know. I don't know this we you're talking about. We lost. And what became clear is he was under the assumption that surely, surely, everybody in your church voted the same way. I mean, how could you even have a church if everybody doesn't vote the same way? And so I told him that if we are ever a church where everybody is happy or everybody is sad on election nights because everybody voted the same, then we are a church that has failed to be a church. I don't know what we are, but we're not a church because if churches are not places, y'all, where allegedly impossible divisions are being overcome by God in Christ through the power of the Spirit, then they ain't churches. Whatever else they are, they're not churches. So now let's see what all of this looks like in action. Let's see how all the complicated theological stuff that Paul talks about in Romans actually all builds to this really simple crescendo in Romans 16. All right, we're going to read Romans 16, verses 1 through 20. It'll be on the screen for you, I believe. It's going to be real fun for you too because you'll hear me mispronounce all these, these names that I don't know how to pronounce, but I will do my best. Romans 16, 1 through 20. Paul says, now I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sancria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever she may have need of you, for she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. Now, I want you to greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who from my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Apeitness, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who were also in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apellus, the approved in Christ. 
Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsmen. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, very unfortunate name, who are in the Lord. <clears throat> Greet Trophana and Tryphasa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, choice man in the Lord. Also tells mom what's up. She's great. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with him. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, I want you to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned. And I want you to turn away from them. For such people are slaves, but not of the Lord Jesus, slaves of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I am rejoicing over where you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Right, Romans 16, 1 through 20. <clears throat> okay, so Paul writes this letter to five small house churches. If you're paying attention, you might have noticed that we know there were five small house churches because Paul mentions five house churches there in Romans 16. You notice? He's like, hey, say hey to the church in that house and that house and that house. And then Paul sends this letter with someone named Phoebe. If you're paying attention, you probably also noticed that Phoebe is a woman. Right? We learn in verse 2 that she is a servant of the church in Sancria. That word servant comes from the Greek word diakone, from which we get the English word deacon, meaning she likely served in an official capacity as a deacon in her church. And we need to pause here and understand the enormous trust that Paul has placed in Phoebe in choosing her, out of all people, to deliver this letter. All right, so let's put ourselves in the place of these uh, early Roman Christians as they listen to Phoebe read Paul's letter to them. Now, do you think that after listening to this absurdly long and complicated letter, like, y'all, you know how long Romans is? It's, it's like three times longer than any other letter Paul wrote. It is absurdly long. It is absurdly complicated. Do you think that after hearing this letter read to you, you might have some questions, anybody? I, you'd be, she'd be like two words in. I'd be like, here in the back, got a few questions for you. And who do you think would have been responsible for answering people's questions about the letter? Paul's not there. Yeah, Paul can't do it. Phoebe. Phoebe would have been responsible because in addition for being responsible for delivering the letter and reading the letter, Phoebe would have also been responsible for interpreting the letter, for helping all these people understand the letter. I love the way Scott McKnight puts this in his commentary on Romans. He says, look, writers like Paul didn't hand their letters over to schmucks to stumble their way through the letters. Okay, so Phoebe, Phoebe was no schmuck. She was a leader of her church. She was responsible for delivering, reading, and then interpreting perhaps the most important letter that has ever been written. And then we learn in verse 2 that she was a, a helper of many, which is a technical term that means she was a, a benefactor, a very wealthy woman who financially supported Paul and many other missionaries. All this to say, the theological way to say this is that Phoebe was a boss, okay? She was a boss. And then after introducing Phoebe, Paul starts this really long string of greetings. You notice them? Oh, man, Paul says what's up to everybody. Everybody gets a shout out. Paul mentions more people in Romans 16 than he does all of his other letters combined. 26 names. And these 26 names tell us some very, very interesting things about these early Roman churches. Now, first off, and picking up where we left off with Phoebe, 
about half of the names that Paul mentions are female, meaning women were very involved in the leadership of these early Roman house churches. There are a lot of stories we could tell here, but the most interesting story to tell is that of a woman named Junia. She is mentioned in verse 7 as being outstanding among the apostles. And here's the short story version of Junia's story. The name Junia, okay, you see it up there, Junia, it is a female name. Everybody knows this, everybody agrees upon this. And so when Paul says in verse 7, I want you to greet Andronicus and Junia, he is clearly referring to a husband and wife team, just like he does in verse 3 when he says, I want you to greet Prisca and Aquila. All right, so everybody gets this, everybody agrees upon this. This is where things get interesting. Paul then goes on to say that Junia is outstanding among the apostles, which is a phrase that probably means that Junia was an apostle, okay? Now, we need to understand here, in the first century world, what's an apostle? You didn't have all these official roles yet. An apostle was somebody who had seen the resurrected Christ, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection. And so a woman being an apostle is not something we should find particularly surprising because all the first apostles were women. Now, you remember the story. If you've only been here on Easter Sunday, you've heard this story. Mary Magdalene and her friends, they go to Jesus' tomb. They're going to anoint him for burial. You remember the story? The stone is rolled away. There are angels. There's resurrected Jesus. Bing, bang, bong. The women are the first apostles. They are the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And y'all, this again, this should not surprise us because this is what God does. This is God's MO, right? Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. He says, listen up. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised things. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that nobody may boast before God. It's all pretty clear. And yet, about a thousand years after Paul wrote Romans, a thousand years later, this really intense debate breaks out about Junia. Because people started arguing that her name, it must have been like a, like a shortened male nickname. You know, it's like there's someone named Junia Robert, and, and he goes by Junia for short. That makes sense, right? You would do that. Your name is Elizabeth Bob. You'd obviously go by Elizabeth if you were a dude. No, it doesn't make sense. How does this all happen? Well, because you know, women can't be apostles. We all know women can't be apostles because all these layers of bureaucracy had built up in the church. And now there are all these fights about what roles women could and could not play. And it's a really sad story of Scripture being twisted and forced to conform to predetermined agendas. All this to say, look, good and reasonable people can disagree about how to best interpret the entirety of what Scripture says about the proper roles of women in the church. Right? You probably live with that family tension here at the Avenue. We live with that family tension at my church. Good and reasonable people can disagree on that. But Junia... Y'all, Junia was a woman. Not Junia Bob. Junia was a woman. And she was probably an apostle. Just like all the first women were apostles. Because y'all, this is what God does. God chooses the things that are not. And God nullifies the things that are. Because God is on a mission to graciously humble all of us into a gospel family where the least are the greatest and the greatest are the least until there's no longer such thing as least and greatest and greatest and least because all that matters is serving each other in love. Amen? That's not how Christians talk. Who's the least? Who's the greatest? We don't talk that way. And this comes up again and again in the 26 names that Paul mentions in Romans 16. Because in this list of names, John, this is so cool. There are Greek names. 
There are Latin names. There are Jewish names. There are men. There are women. There are young. There are old. Because long before diversity became fashionable and everybody wanted to talk about it, the early church was living it. Like no other place in the ancient world, early Christian churches were places where people who did not belong together, who allegedly could not belong together, were learning how to belong together because they've been called together by God in Christ through the power of the Spirit. And that brings us to this one final word, this word, greet. Paul uses it again and again in Romans 16. He says, I want you to greet this person, greet that person, greet that person. Everybody gets a greeting in Romans 16. It is the Greek word, espasomai. And it doesn't mean like, say, hey, what's up? No. A spasm, I want you to greet people. It literally means like, I want, you to, I want you to draw them close and embrace them. Like literally, I want you to hug them. That's what Paul's saying. He then goes even further in verse 16. And he says, I want you to greet one another in Christ with a holy kiss. Now, I know you pride yourselves on being very biblical here at the Avenue. So I would like everybody to turn to their neighbor, whomever he or she may be, pucker up. And we're going to, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we'll not go over well in the time of COVID um, or ever probably. But I do want to be clear here. I'm not going to make you kiss your neighbor. But, but, but this is literally what Paul is telling them to do. It's not a metaphor. Paul is literally telling these people, these people who, again, come from very different backgrounds, Greek, Jewish, Latin, like you name it, men and women, rich and poor, young and old. Uh, he's telling these very different people who disagree about a lot. Like if you've read Romans, there's a lot of disagreement, especially about the bacon. There are a lot of disagreements about the bacon between the Jews and the Gentiles and circumcision. That was a big one too. They, these people, they disagreed about a lot of stuff. And Paul's telling them what? Literally, I want you to embrace one another in Christ and give each other a holy kiss. That's what Paul says. My wife's father, so my father-in-law, uh, was the warmest, most affectionate person I have ever met in my entire life. I'll never forget the first time I met him. We were hometown sweethearts. You see, so she's 16 years old. I'm 19. I'm going to meet her dad. Very scary moment for me. We pull up, and, and like immediately when we get out of the car, her dad just comes running up to her full speed, grabs her, gives her the biggest daddy-daughter bear hug you've ever seen in your life. It's just, it's adorable. You know, I'm like, yes, yeah, this is great. And then to, to my great surprise, he, he kisses her on the lips, now, you got to understand, uh, the Fisher family, we're not lip kissers, really, as I don't think really any families are, apparently except for my wife and her family. And so I'm, I'm very caught off guard by this. I'm like, oh, my God, what? <laughs> Have I got myself fit? Am I in Arkansas? What is happening? <laughs> I'm not down with what's happening right now. But, you know, he, he kisses her. and Then he turns to me, and I have this moment, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> try to kiss. He's going to try to kiss me on the lips. Am I going to let him? If the only way to her lips is through his lips, then lay it on me, man. I'm here for it. But I mean, <laughs> luckily he just came up, gave me a big bear hug, gave me a big kiss on the cheek. And we were best buddies from that moment on. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And this is why this is so interesting. Let's go now to the very last thing that Paul says in Romans. And I want you to notice the change in tone, the change in temperature. Okay. Paul's just said, look, I want you literally to like welcome each other in Christ with a holy kiss. Okay. He said that. Now, notice how quick the turn is here in verse 17. What does he say? He says, now I urge you, I want you to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned. And I want you to turn away from them. Right? No holy kisses for them. I want you to turn away from them. One of the things people fail to understand about Paul, 
right? Because you know Paul's got a reputation, right? You know Paul's reputation. He's like this hardcore, extremist, uncompromising zealot who demanded that everybody agree with him about everything. Apostle Paul. But I'm telling you, Paul is very misunderstood. He was actually a very laid back and open-minded guy. He really was, I promise. Paul actually had a lot of patience for a lot of people. Have you ever read the New Testament? It's, it's Paul putting up with knuckleheads. That's like the whole, that is the whole New Testament. There's your New Testament survey class. Paul putting up with knuckleheads. Paul had patience for all kinds of people, but, but Paul had no patience for people who delighted in causing division. Paul had no patience for people who delighted in causing division. And I don't think it would be going too far to say that a lot of us delight in people who delight in causing division. We love their shows, their talk shows. We subscribe to their podcasts. We eagerly await their latest post on social media. We love it. And I hear a lot nowadays about, oh, you know, man, our, our society's being ruined by, you know, fill in the blank. Our society's being ruined by the liberals. It's being ruined by the conservatives, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just, just listen to me on that. Nobody is ruining us. Nobody ruining you. Nobody's ruining us. No, we are ruining ourselves by hostility. Nobody's ruining you. We are ruining ourselves by hostility due in large part to the fact that far too many of us pay far too much attention to people who delight in causing division. That's why I love the imagery that Paul uses here to close this most important of his letters because what does he say? He says, look, instead of embracing those who delight in causing division, what's Paul said to do with them? I want you to send them packing. Again, no holy kisses for them. You don't, you, you don't welcome people who delight in causing division. You send them packing for their good, long-term, and for your good. You don't, you don't, you don't welcome them. You send them packing. And then instead of pushing away those who you find difficult, who you disagree with, what does Paul say? I want you to draw them in close, embrace them in Christ, and give them. You got to give them the holy kiss. Why? Why do we have to do that? Because that is what God in Christ did for you. And that's why you're here. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. We are not entitled to good things. Every breath in and every breath out is a gracious gift from our creator. We come to you this morning, God, and I pray for my friends here at the Avenue Church in Waukahatchee. I know it's been a long year for a lot of people. I know there is a lot that pulls us apart. We disagree about a lot of stuff. And yet, if we can't find a way to accept that you and Christ have overcome even our deepest disagreements, then the world cannot believe that God sent Jesus. The greatest witness we can give to the world is not, you know, a cool Sunday morning, a clever explanation of the gospel. No, the greatest witness we can give the world is learning how to get along, learning how to embrace one another in Christ, just as you in Christ embraced us. We trust that you're faithful to do this. We confess all the ways that we have prevented you from doing this deep unifying work in our midst, and we trust you with our future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Our hope is that this message inspires you to encounter Jesus and find a better way to do life. We'd love to hear from you and get you connected on your journey. 
Visit theavenuechurch.com slash connect to get started. To hear the latest from us, don't forget to subscribe. See you soon.